This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Sam Chandon. Welcome back to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by Wharton. I am your host, Sam Chandon. It has been more than a decade since the U.S. housing market reached the apex that preceded the global financial crisis, and almost a decade since Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the government-sponsored enterprises that live at the foundation of our system of housing finance, in the face of extraordinary losses, came under conservatorship. While the GSEs have returned to profitability, the exit from conservatorship has not followed. In part, that reflects the absence of a strong political consensus on the government's role in supporting housing outcomes in the United States. For a big picture look at the housing market, affordability challenges that we continue to face, and to discuss the outlook for housing finance reform, I am joined now by Dr. Michael Frattentoni, Chief Economist at the Mortgage Bankers Association. At the MBA, Mike is responsible for overseeing industry surveys, benchmarking studies, economic and mortgage origination forecasts, industry technology efforts, and policy research. He has also served on the adjunct faculties of the University of Washington, Johns Hopkins, GW, and Georgetown. Mike, thanks for coming back to the program. Great to be here, Sam. So I want to begin with the open letter to Congress uh, related to GSE reform. Uh, I gather there have been more than 160 financial institutions that have signed up to this letter representing some of the you know, most distinguished uh, and, and relevant players in, uh, in mortgage lending in the United States. Uh, what is it that uh, is sort of at the heart of the issue that's being addressed in this letter? Well, great question. So now, you mentioned it's been really a decade since the peak of the crisis, and uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have been in conservatorship since then, what Secretary Paulson at the time referred to as a temporary timeout while Congress resolved some of the issues with the prior business model has turned into this decade-long you know, conversation and debate about how we want to move forward with, with respect to housing finance reform. You know, I think some of it is recognizing the strengths of the prior and current model that we have this unbelievably liquid secondary market and a you know a TBA uh, to be announced market which allows borrowers to lock in their interest rates on on long-term fixed rate loans also have a very liquid market for multifamily finance uh, we want to maintain that strength but we want to fix some of the problems that existed with the prior model and i really tend to focus on uh just a handful of problems you know one was the ambiguity about what the government was backing and what they weren't, so the the nature of an implicit guarantee behind the enterprises. And I think there's an emerging consensus that you want to move from that uh, ambiguous implicit guarantee to an explicit guarantee that's uh, just focused on the mortgage-backed securities market to really keep this TBA uh, market going. And so that our listeners have an idea of sort of you know, what's really driving outcomes in housing markets you know, over this decade-long period, can you tell us a little bit about the governance of Fannie and Freddie uh, you know, during conservatorship? And in particular, what is the role of the FHFA? Uh, that's a great question. So a conservator uh, under law has all the powers of the organization's board of directors and management. So... Uh, they essentially have the ability to call all the shots with respect to strategy, tactic, day-to-day operations of both enterprises, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, including the, the the hiring of of executives there. And 
the way they've uh, went about that, you know, would really commend FHFA under both uh, Acting Director DeMarco and uh, over the past several years, Director Watt, they've delegated a number of those authorities back to the board of directors and, and executives of those agencies, you know, set some broad strategic goals, but really try to do it in a way that keeps the market functioning. Um, one of the issues under the prior model was, you know, a, a really a lack of competition in the secondary market. So you had Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac with the congressional charters. Congress wasn't providing any more. Uh, so uh, MBA's proposal was to allow the regulator to, to grant charters the way the OCC grants national bank charters. Uh, but specifically to this letter, one of the biggest problems of the prior model was that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, in a fight for market share, uh, would often you know, provide uh, volume discounts, lower pricing to the largest lenders, in addition to access to certain products or programs that the entire market wouldn't get. And it led to a real sense that what we want going forward is a level playing field. You know, what are the real strengths of the mortgage market? is that in 2016, there were 6,700 lenders that made mortgages in this country, an incredibly dynamic and competitive market. And you want that whole set of lenders to be able to get uh, equal access to the secondary market. Right. So I'm going to ask you a little bit more about sort of this system of uh, you know, uh, additional competition, uh, also guarantor versus uh, issuer-based systems. Uh, in terms of the actual letter, the first bullet point that's raised by the MBA, it says an explicit federal guarantee on mortgage securities to preserve the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, what is the importance of that 30-year mortgage to the kinds of outcomes that we get in U.S. housing finance and, and in terms of home ownership? Yeah. Well, we certainly see in the market today, if you look at loans that are for the, the purchase of a home, you know, more than 90% are, are 30-year fixed-rate loans. So what that says to me, it's kind of a revealed preference argument, right? So borrowers are, are, are voting with, with their pocketbook that, you know, given a choice at a reasonable price, they're going to opt for a, a long-term fixed-rate mortgage. And uh, you know, Sam, you, you and I, I, I operate in the, in the academic world, and a lot of academics over time have, have questioned, you know, wh whether they, the value really is there, that, you know, if the typical homeowner is only in their property for seven or eight years, why are they buying 30 years of insurance? Um, but uh, at, at the same time, again, I think uh, the, the pricing matters. If you see uh, a 30-year become more expensive relative to a 5-1 arm, we'll see the arm share go up. You know, so people respond to incentives. But uh, having that ability to, to lock in a rate for a long time and really lock in their housing costs it really seems to be quite appealing to U.S. consumers. Now, the next point that's raised in the letter then is that we need to see more private capital at risk. What, what do we mean by that? So Fannie and Freddie in the, in the prior system uh, had a much lower capital standard than competing investors. So, you know, shorthand, you know, they would have, you know, half a percent, 45 basis points of capital, where a bank holding capital against the same mortgage would put up 400 basis points, so almost 10 times as much. Uh, the GSE's capital was insufficient to see them through the crisis. So lots of uh, agreement that more capital is needed and, uh, the system's gonna gonna operate more efficiently if you have private capital making those pricing decisions with respect to the credit risk. All right. 
So in this system where we have additional private capital at risk, where you know more lenders have access to you know this uh, system of guarantees or insurance, what does that look like? Are there a number of other institutions that you know support the secondary market like Fannie and Freddie do now, or is it the case that you know a whole range of these six thousand and some um, you know frontline lenders that you've described are actually accessing you know some type of insurance directly? That gets to the nub of it: this guarantor-based model versus an issuer-based model. So, uh, with the the prior system, Fannie and Freddie. Uh, they would take uh, loans in and then uh, issue securities out to global investors. Um, that really was providing a central sort of liquidity function for the market. And MBA's view is that guarantor-based system where a lender, regardless of whether they're you know, one of the largest banks in the country or a small family-owned independent mortgage bank, that doesn't have access to liquidity, they can reach that secondary market on equal terms. Uh, Fannie and Freddie each have you know, more than 1,000 lenders that come directly to them and, and sell loans today. A comparison is if you look at the Ginnie Mae market, where lenders are bringing FHA or VA or USDA loans to be securitized. There are only about 300 uh, Ginnie Mae issuers today, and they tend to be larger organizations than your average lender that comes to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And the reason is that the liquidity demands for that Ginnie Mae issuer are really much uh, more rigorous than is true for someone selling into Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. A Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac uh, seller you know, might decide to retain or to sell off the servicing on that loan. Uh, they might decide to uh, issue uh, directly into an MBS or to sell into a cash window at, at Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. So it's a much more flexible secondary market execution going to, uh, to, to Fannie or Freddie, and that allows many more lenders to go directly to the secondary market. And that led to our really strong preference for the guarantor base versus the issuer base, where the, the issuer base would be much more similar to that Ginny-style execution. Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, we've not seen tremendous momentum uh, behind uh, housing finance reform over the course of this 10-year period. Uh, th- that being said, it, it certainly does seem to me that you know the, the Mortgage Bankers Association has put together a very careful, well-thought-out uh, you know, set of policy priorities here that really does have, you know, support you know, across a, a wide cross-section of, of uh, mortgage lenders. Um, that being said, you know, is there, what are the prospects? Are there any indications right now that uh, housing finance reform you know, will uh, emerge as a policy priority in Washington uh, over the course of this administration? Definitely a good question. You know, I think we've got two separate efforts underway in Congress. Uh, we have a, a Senate bill, which uh, a, a version was, was leaked to the press a month or so ago, which would lean more towards this guarantor-based type of system. Uh, expectations are that the, the House Financial Services Committee is probably leaning closer towards an, an issuer-based type system. So uh, both in both cases, I think there's concerns among sort of the, the, the folks who know that just given the legislative calendar and given the complexity of this issue, it's going to be sort of a, a tough road to, to reach conclusion this year. But, you know, this is an issue where, you know, obviously views have evolved over the past decade where 
uh, immediately post-crisis, there was just this sense of, wow, the, the, the prior system just, just failed. You know, do we need to go back to the drawing board? And I think, you know, over time, it's been more the way I described it among numerous stakeholders, which is, look, there was a lot that worked in that prior system. We want to retain as much as possible. There's a lot of institutional and physical and human capital invested in uh, having that, uh, that system operate. What are the least number of changes we can make to address the, the problems that we had with that system and to make it more stable and really a base moving forward? Um, and there's ways you can get there. There are ways you can get there through legislation. There are ways you can get there through uh, regulatory reform, and there are ways you can get there through administrative reform. So, you know, the the Treasury uh, holds senior preferred stock, uh, uh, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars uh, with respect to the enterprises, and so they obviously have a voice at the table as well with respect to where we move from here. And my expectation is going to be over the next several years some combination of regulatory, administrative, and legislative reform. Uh, but along these lines of, you know, keep what you can that's operating well, fix what you need to fix to put the, the system on a more uh, stable foundation going forward. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by Wharton. I am your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Dr. Mike Fratantoni, Chief Economist of the Mortgage Bankers Association. Mike, I want to shift gears a little bit away from uh, you know, GSE reform to some of the trends in, in, in housing itself. Uh, as compared to the last time you were on the program, both at the short and long end of the yield curve, rates are higher. What's happened with mortgage rates over this time, and how has that impacted affordability? had a, a definitely a noticeable impact. So, you know, last week in our weekly application survey, the mortgage rate was at about 4.6%. So, you know, we're up more than half a point from, from the end of last year in terms of a 30-year mortgage rate. That's important. And, you know, what we estimate on a typical mortgage, it's added about, you know, $80 per month to a, to a mortgage payment. But more important is the lack of supply in the market. So, uh, we are close to all-time record lows in terms of uh, existing home inventory, about four months of supply uh, at the current pace of sales. Demand is still strong. Uh, we have this incredibly strong job market, and the combination of those two, a tight supply and growing demand, FHFA was out yesterday. Home prices grew 7.3% nationally over the past 12 months. And this is at a time when incomes are growing barely 3%. So that's not a sustainable situation to have home prices racing ahead of income for long periods of time. And if we were to look across the spectrum um, and you know, the segment of the housing market that would be sort of most applicable for the first-time home buyer, are we seeing those same kinds of uh, you know, rates of appreciation you know, even for that first time? I would say even more so. I think the, the supply constraints are... Uh, most severe at the entry level. Right. And we've had colleagues on from National Association of Home Builders and others that have you know, also raised this point that you know, we've, we have you know, meaningful constraints on supply. Uh, there just are not a lot of new you know, single-family units in particular coming online, uh, but the demand is there. What are the prospects for the underlying conditions that are acting as constraints, really holding back that supply? Uh, any relief uh, in the near future? Well, if you talk to builders, you know, they would say that the primary constraint right now is is just a lack of workers, a lack of skilled tradesmen to complete their 
their uh, their units. And we are seeing construction wages uh, going up a significant amount ahead of overall wages. You know, we're we're all economists here, right? I mean, that that mm-hmm. that eventually will will solve the problem, but there is just a uh, a time period that's going to take to adjust. It, you can't build a, a carpenter overnight. They take time to train. They take time to uh, get the necessary experience on the job. So uh, I think that labor constraint will will be resolved, but it's it's going to be slow. Uh, the other constraints, uh, just a, a lack of developable land. I think the the entitlement process in most parts of this country just takes a very long time. Um, we're also adding to costs sort of unnecessarily right now. So things like a a tariff on Canadian lumber uh, isn't helping. Uh, you know, we've seen lumber costs go up 50% in the last 14 months, and 20% of that uh, is potentially due to the tariff. So um, that, that's adding to costs, making it even more difficult to builders, uh, for builders to put entry-level homes on the market. Let me ask you about this, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the lumber tariff on Canada. I'm a Canadian myself, and I feel like ever since, you know, I was a little kid, this trade war as relates to lumber between Canada and the United States has been an issue. Does this ever go away? I think that's outside of my expertise. <laughs> I think it, 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 just, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, you know, I understand there are there clearly uh, you know, lumber interests, but it's, it's the same argument as the, the steel and aluminum tariffs that, uh, yes, there are, there are steel producers in the United States, but I think there are 10 times as many steel consumers, so uh, it, it doesn't seem like a good long-run policy for the U.S. Well, you know, the market took a tumble yesterday with concerns around uh, the prospects for the possibility of a trade war. Uh, d- does that kind of scenario have implications for home building costs? No, de- definitely. You know, I think, uh, you know, the U.S. is a consumer uh, globally of a lot of those inputs that, that go into housing with, with lumber being predominant, but all the others as well. So, uh, again, in an environment where home prices are already increasing at twice the rate or more of income, adding to housing costs is, is not going to be helpful. Yeah. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about today uh, is uh, with respect to credit trends. You know, as compared to you know a year ago, certainly a couple of years ago, uh, how easy or difficult is it for me to get a mortgage today? I think it's getting easier. Um, what we are seeing is, uh, you know, in the mortgage industry, you talk about are we in a refi market where it's predominantly people refinancing existing mortgages or a purchase market. In 2016, it was split right down the middle. Uh, in 2017, it was uh, about a third refi. This year, we think it will be about 25% refi share. So we are definitely in a purchase market. In that purchase market, with volume down and margins tight in this business, uh, lenders are working hard to try to uh, serve every additional borrower that comes in the door. And sometimes that means stretching a little bit. And so we're seeing uh, debt-to-income ratios rise. We're seeing uh, loan-to-value ratios increase. So you're seeing going into Fannie Mae, uh, about a quarter of the purchase loans have a 5% or lower down payment. And that really is a is a sharp difference from just a couple of years ago. And people talk that uh, sometimes consumers still have a misimpression that you need to have a 20% down payment to buy a home. And that really couldn't be further from the truth, whether it's a conventional loan or a FHA or VA loan. There are plenty of opportunities for, for lower down payments. 
Right. So where you describe that higher leverage um, and some of these other trends, uh, any concerns there? Are we still in a space where we can feel comfortable with the quality of mortgages that are being made? So we've seen a tick up in delinquency rates uh, over the last couple of quarters. Some of that is uh, hurricane related, uh, particularly if you look in Florida and Texas. But some of it's not. Uh, so I think uh, you know we are moving from what were 20-year lows in delinquency rates to something that's a little bit higher, and I think some of that is reflecting additional credit risk. And I don't want to overstate it, right? We are we are nowhere close to where we were during the boom from you know 05 to 07, but we are seeing credit to begin to relax a little bit, both in response to these affordability challenges and in response to the decline in volume in the industry and, and lenders really, again, trying to, to work to meet the, the needs of every borrower that comes in the door. Right. So when we're putting that in context, you know, for, from my perspective, while sort of there are certainly you know some elements of the market that always you know, deserve to you know be watched carefully, I don't feel right now like uh, housing will be a causal factor in the next inflection in the business cycle. I agree, and I think the difference is, if you looked in that '05 to '07 period. There were many markets in the country where there was just tremendous amounts of overbuilding. You know, whether you look at Inland Empire in California or Las Vegas or parts of Florida, I don't see anywhere where we're overbuilding today. We just talked about the supply constraints. So if demand falls off, you'll get some deceleration in price growth, some deceleration in transactions. But I don't, I don't see a price drop anywhere. All right. So we have just uh, about a minute left, a little less than a minute. Uh, big picture, tax changes, does the, uh, the, the lower cap on mortgage interest deductions impact the market significantly? It's going to be a bit of a headwind. You know, we changed our macro forecast to add a little bit to GDP growth and a stronger job market from the tax bill. And we really didn't touch our, our housing or mortgage forecast. We think it's a bit of a wash. You get the benefits of the stronger economy. A little bit of a headwind, particularly in uh, New York, New Jersey, some California metros uh, from this drop in the mortgage interest reduction cap and also some of the, the SALT changes, the state and local deductions. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming back to the program once again. Always happy to be here, Sam. Thank you. That was Dr. Mike Fratantoni, Chief Economist of the Mortgage Bankers Association. That is all the time we have for today. Thanks to both Mike and my first guest, Adam Kaufman, co-founder and managing director of Arbor Crowd. Our show will be repeated throughout the week. You can read more about The Real Estate Hour and our other shows and hosts on the SiriusXM website. If you have questions for us, you can write to our email address, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111, at Sirius Real Estate on SXM, and at Sam Chandon. The Real Estate Hour is produced by Patty Hall, who's also Program Director here at Business Radio. Dion Simpkins has run of the house on the soundboard. I am your host, Sam Chandon. Thanks once again for joining us. Make sure to come back next Friday for our next episode. Again, this has been the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 